comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk is up next. Good morning and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond. Brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and WERU. My name is CJ Walk and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. here on WERU. So for today's show, we are going to be talking about producing solar power on Maine farms. Uh, renewable energy experts have long recognized the need to act on climate change by shifting away from fossil fuels. And with solar technology costs slightly decreasing, a number of main farms and homes are discovering the advantages of clean power from the sun. Maine solar resource is comparable to cities like Houston and Miami, and greater than international leaders in solar like the country of Germany. Today we will discuss various ways solar power is being produced on Maine farms and homes, tax incentives that might help with the cost, which are soon to expire, and legislative efforts to support clean energy from the sun. So I have a couple of guests with me on the show today, um, a couple in the studio and one on the phone. But before I get to inter- introductions and discussion, I just wanted to list off a few of the events going on in our community that uh, listeners may be interested in. So on September 8th, there is a wild mushroom workshop, Foraging for Maine's Best Functional Food, which is being held at 6.30 p.m. at the Belfast Free Library, which is on 106 High Street in Belfast. And this is a presentation with mycologist and author Greg Marley, who will introduce the best edible and medicinal mushrooms in the fall woods of Maine. And that event is sponsored by the Belfast Library and the Belfast Co-op. On the 13th is a Hills to Sea Trail Building Day, which is organized by the Waldo County Trails Coalition, and if you're interested in helping out there, they are meeting at 1 p.m. at the Freedom General Store on Route 137 in Freedom. And they ask to please bring a handsaw and or loppers. And for more info, uh, you can contact Buck at 589-4311. And then coming up at the end of the month through the, 20, the 25th through the 27th is the Common Ground Country Fair held in Unity. And the fair is Mofka's premier event celebrating rural living. And this is three full days of educational talks and demonstrations, entertainment, and main-grown organic food and products from local artisans. If you're interested in volunteering, you can contact through email volunteers at mofka.org or call the office at 568-4142. And during Saturday of the fair, there is a public policy teach-in which the focus is solar on main farms and homes, which is being held during the Saturday afternoon from 2 to 3.30 on the Spotlight stage. And for those of you that may have seen the fair book, there was a change in the time. So the time initially or originally was from 1 to 2.30, but that has been changed from 2 o'clock to 3.30 on the Spotlight stage. 
So we get past the calendar events there. And I'd like to focus on our guests. So today uh, we're talking about solar power on Maine farms and for Maine homes, but focusing more on farms in a way. And uh, I have three guests with me for the show, which I'd like to go and introduce them both, uh, or each introduce all three of them briefly. So I believe we have Bill Behrens is on the phone with us, and Bill is the co-founder of Revision Energy, based out of Liberty, Maine. And... um, Bill has more than 20 years' experience in renewable energy systems design, installation, and service. And Revision Energy has installed more than 3,000 solar systems since opening in 2003. And Bill's current focus at Revision is bringing solar power to municipalities and nonprofits throughout New England. Good morning, Bill. CJ, thanks for having me. Okay. Glad to hear you're, you're on the phone. Thank you, Bill. And then... Also, uh, here in the studio, <clears throat> excuse me, we have Anna Demio, who works for College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, and she is COA's Director of Energy Education and Management. Anna's background is in electrical engineering, and she has designed and installed half a dozen solar projects on COA's campus and farms, all done with student involvement and as part of COA's energy curriculum. So thanks for being here, Anna. Nice to be here. And then we also have Steve Katona, who is part of the MDI Clean Energy Partners and has been, I guess, long-term involvement with College of the Atlantic. But I'll let him speak a little bit more about background as we get uh, to more, to more um, broader introductions here. So uh, I just want to remind listeners that this, this is a call-in show, probably around 1020 or 1025. We will open up the phone lines, and I'll give out the number to call at that time. But first, I'd like to kind of circle back around and give each of our guests a few minutes to kind of introduce themselves and speak to kind of their background with renewable energy and kind of specific to solar power. So, Bill, if I would like you to um, maybe say a few minutes or a few words for a couple minutes first, please. Sure, CJ. Um, I got interested in solar power back in the late 80s when uh, my construction company had the opportunity to build an off-grid solar home. It's actually one of the larger ones at the time, and to me, solar power is an amazing tool. Uh, it produces electricity from what seem to be otherwise inert objects. Um, that really sparked my interest. Um, in 93, uh, with some other friends, I started a business in Belfast called The Green Store. Uh, the purpose, One of the purposes of that business was to actually put solar power uh, in the hands of people so they could see what this magic was all about. Uh, And out of the green store, we did quite a few, probably a couple hundred off-grid solar homes. And then uh, in the late 90s, uh, we conceptualized and then formed Revision Energy as a solar contracting company. Um, So I've actually been at the Common Ground Fair with a booth for 20 years and uh, for the green store and for Revision Energy. Uh, now Revision operates in both Maine and New Hampshire, and it's, it's evidence really of how what the what what the first steps of the energy transition are starting to look like. Um, over the long range, we will be a society based in renewable energy, not in fossil energy, and this is what the early steps look like. Um, so, with that, I think I'll pass the microphone. Okay, thank you, Bill. And then I think just move over to Anna, if you can kind of just introduce the work that you do in background through COA. 
Sure. So my background is in electrical, electrical engineering, as you said, and I was in industry for many years. Uh, more recently, in the past 10 years or so, I have moved to academia teaching physics and engineering courses at COA. Um, most recently, uh, that work is focused on energy courses in terms of um, whether it's solar or wind or electric vehicles and working with students to do practical hands-on courses where they learn all about different technologies, uh, but also the social implications, economic implications, and uh, government policy components of doing renewable energy projects in communities. And that's the focus of my PhD work, which was um, a PhD up at UMaine in community-scale renewable energy with a focus on uh, smart grid and uh, education. Okay. All right. Thanks, Anna. And then Steve Katona is also here. And Steve, you seem to have many hats, so I thought I'd best let you pick out which ones to describe here on the, on the show today. Well, thanks, CJ. They're all sort of the same. I was trained uh, as a marine biologist and was on the founding faculty at College of the Atlantic from uh, 1972 till 1993 and then um, was president from 1993 to 2006. So um, I was always uh, aware of the relationship between sustainability efforts of all kinds and the quality of ocean health. And now I'm uh, managing director of the Ocean Health Index at Conservation International. And uh, our lead scientist, Ben Halpern, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, um, just published a, a report on the global human impacts on the ocean uh, and looked at changes from 2008 to 2013. Well, there are a lot of impacts, but the one that uh, has changed the most in those five years um, is impact from climate change. So um, the use of renewable energy and getting the society off of uh, fossil fuels is uh, has um, effects all around the world, of course, and in the ocean too. So it relates to my... Um, marine interests and uh, so I'm really glad to be here and um, advocate for this transition okay all right thank you Steve Um, so one thing I wanted to uh, we kind of briefly discussed this a bit I think before the show but something I just want to touch on farm related was to just talk about a little bit about the history of renewable energy on farms and kind of give maybe just a little bit of a historical background. Anna, if you wanted to say a few words there. Sure. So there's a, there's a long and rich history of um, farms and renewable energy. Uh, so people have been using um, wind mills for many years to, to pump water, to mill grain. They've also been using wind turbines to generate electricity in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was uh, wind turbines producing electricity for farms across this country, as well as other countries. And there was the the brush farm uh, wind turbine that was about a 12 kilowatt turbine that that would service the three to f- three to four farms at a time. And it wasn't until the Rural Electrification Act in the early 30s that brought grid power to farms that you started to see the disappearance of wind turbines and um, and other renewables on farms. But there's still uh, a close tie. There's many farms that can't get power. The the power lines don't come to that to the farm. 
And so there's a long history of using solar on farms. Right now, I think the USDA estimates about 8,000 or 8,500 farms have solar installations on them. And they really do complement each other very well. One of the biggest uses of electricity on a farm is irrigation, pumping of water, and tends to be that you need to pump water when the sun is out. And so those work really well together. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then um, <clears throat> as we move forward, I thought that maybe, Bill, I had a question for you or um, really just when we talk about solar energy, if we could give listeners, um, I think most are familiar with solar panels and photovoltaics in a way, but I'm just curious if you could give kind of a brief description of how it actually works and what is actually, you know, happening there when those panels are collecting the sunlight. Sure. Uh, there's, there are two main branches of solar power that are at, at active solar, um, actually collecting energy from the sunlight and um, putting it to work, uh, the solar electric and solar thermal. Solar thermal is a um, very simple process of using sunlight to heat a fluid and to allow that fluid to carry that heat to a place where that heat can be useful, usually water heating. Uh, We've seen a number of farms um, use solar thermal collectors to do process water heating, uh, bottle washing, um, milkroom functions. Uh, Very, very highly effective in any situation where you need a fair amount of heated fluid, um, usually water, uh, then solar thermal collectors are going to be the most effective, most efficient. Solar electric, on the other hand, is is a lot more versatile in its application, and that's just because electricity is a more versatile power source than heat. Uh, you can use electricity to make heat. You can use electricity to turn on lights, to run pumps, to do all sorts of different kinds of tasks. So the ability of a solar electric panel to make electricity usable electricity um, is huge. And when I said that these are basically inert objects. Uh, it's a remarkable technology. Um, the, the modern solar electric panel is made out of some really essential, very uh, common and ordinary um, uh, elements from our environment. Uh, the major components are, honestly, the aluminum frame and the glass covering on the surface, um, silicon, which is derived from uh, one of the most prevalent elements on the planet, Um, A very small amount of rare earth elements, which are used to activate, in a sense, the silicon cells themselves, and a very little amount of silver and copper in the cabling and wiring, and a very little amount of petroleum products, actually, that are used in the backing sheets um, and junction boxes and wire insulation and that type of thing. Um, But the whole assembly is is a pretty inert device. Um, It doesn't get... uh, it doesn't overheat. Um, if you put it out in the sun and you don't connect the wires, it, nothing happens. It's perfectly fine. It doesn't even get older. It just sits there. And internally what's going on is the sunlight is actually um, raising the energy state of the, of the surface that the sunlight is falling on, and that higher energy state produces free electrons. And if you give those free electrons a circuit to pass through, uh, a wired circuit, then they produce power. And there are lots of great books about the inner workings of a solar panel. I I still am amazed every time we hook up a a house or a school or a business. It still amazes me that you flip the switch and 
and you can see the electric meter start to turn, and there's no there's no moving parts that you can see. There's no noise. There's no sound. Um, it's it's pretty close to the most amazing technology I think we've ever come up with. Okay. Yeah, Steve, I, I think it's pretty great. Um, you know, on the whole, this stuff is pretty simple conceptually. When you think about it, everything except nuclear energy and geothermal energy pretty much runs on solar, including the fossil fuels. They all were solar-powered um, when they were formed millions of years ago. So um, what the um, photovoltaics actually do is mimic exactly what leaves do, but instead of having the free electrons go to um, power another chemical reaction, which ends up making sugar or starch or something like that, we steal the electrons and put them into um, wires and use them to light our lights and do whatever else needs to be done. It is an amazing technology. It's pretty simple in concept. Of course, it was hard to do. Um, And it it all makes so much sense. Farms run on those electrons, on those uh, photons, and they can be powered by those photons. Mm-hmm. Anna, did you want to add anything to the <laughs> the amazing technology? No, I'll, I'll say it's amazing. I mean, Einstein won a Nobel Prize for the photoelectric effect that um, made so much of this possible, and I mean, I think we're all big fans of Einstein. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I wanted to also talk a little bit uh, further into the show. I just wanted to get some more concrete examples of different kind of on-farm solar projects. But I think, uh, Bill, I would come back to you again and kind of just explain for listeners um, just your view and kind of the need for solar energy production. And um, you've touched on it a bit, but just thinking bigger picture for, you know, whether it's a main farm or a main community or globally as well? Well, big, big picture is that we're, in the, we're, we're having the pleasure, all of us alive today, we're having the pleasure of being part of the probably one of the most uh, game-changing transitions um, in human history, and that's the transition uh, away from fossil fuel and uh, to renewable energy, renewable fuels. And it, it's very similar to the transition away from horsepower um, to fossil fuel. Um, it's a radical transition. Um, and in that transition, you're going to have a lot of steps along the way that might feel really clunky and, and unpleasant um, while, you're, while you're taking those steps. But in the end, the, the next reality is going to be a whole lot better than the one before. Just the way the fossil fuel reality was a whole lot better than the horsepower reality um, for most people, and this is, you know, part of part of human culture is part of what makes us a pretty special species is that we actually embrace change and we um, we we make changes and we see what happens. Um, now, so that's that's easy to say, you know, say, okay, 30 years from now we're all going to look back and say, gosh, why did we ever, you know, think that solar power wouldn't work in the state of Maine, for example? We still have customers who 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 are skeptical that solar power can work in the state of Maine. Uh, I can tell you 20 years ago at Common Ground Fair, I would say 90% of the people that came to our booth um, had that point of view, and, and now it's down to maybe 10 or 5%. Uh, that's the kind of social transition that happens um, that sort of goes along with solar power. Um, now, sol- solar power is probably going to be the... Um, most dominant form of renewable energy 
uh, in the future, and that's because, as Steve said, it's so simple. Um, it really works everywhere. Uh, it has very little maintenance. The embedded energy in solar equipment is, is much less than any of the other renewable um, energy sources. The, the, the solar equipment uh, reproduces the energy of its own manufacture um, in about a year and a half. Uh, for a wind farm, it's about seven years. So the, 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 the net energy burden of solar is significantly less than any other of the renewable power sources. Um, so, you know, fundamentally, um, we might fight against the, the, big, the, the big trends, but the big trend is going to be that solar is going to be the dominant energy source. Uh, it's, it's waiting, by the way, for energy storage. Um, and I think that's a really important part of this energy transition. And this is one of the big pieces that, you know, the other shoe has not yet dropped. Um, we don't yet have... The, the solution to energy storage. It's close, and we're getting much, much closer as years go by. Um, but I think even, you know, for all users of, of, of renewable energy, whether it's a home or a farm or a utility, um, that energy storage transition is going to be really remarkable. And we're, 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 we're close to it. You know, certainly within five years, we're going to see a major um, shift in the adoption of energy storage. Okay. Steve, did you have something to add? Well, I was just thinking um, there's some pretty simple energy storage that goes on in uh, in Scandinavia and in, in uh, Europe where they just use the energy generated in the day to pump water up a hill somewhere else mm -hmm. and then let it fall down in the night and uh, drive turbines. But most farms in Maine don't have that kind of opportunity and so the storage will have to be um, on site probably okay Anna so I, I I agree what's been said um, when what Bill mentioned about storage being key and I think another component to that which dovetails in with it is the grid itself mm -hmm. so we're also seeing a transformation in the way our our grid functions going from transitioning from a central distribution to this more of a network of microgrids and that's mm -hmm. how um, and, and storage is certainly a part of that, but that is a huge transformation that we're in the process of. And, and to do that is going to be not both, both the technology for the storage and for the, for the microgrid and, and um, smart technology, but also in terms of the policy and working with um, utilities to think about how can they restructure the way they do business to make this work for everyone. And that's a key component that I know Revisions worked with um, Central Maine Power and working on community scale um, I'm sorry, community-owned um, solar arrays, and we've done some work here with Amira, and um, luckily they've all been um, very willing partners, but we really do have to figure out how this new paradigm works in terms of the economy and policy. Mm -hmm. okay. Anna, that's a great point. The, the transition of the grid, thinking of uh, how, how we think of the grid, um, both as consumers and as companies who own grids and as uh, municipalities, uh, public entities who own grids, and how we all work together when we have the ability to do generation, both uh, generation and storage in a distributed fashion uh, throughout the grid. It's a huge, huge opportunity. Um, some, of, some of those players will drag their feet just the way, obviously, the fossil fuel industry is dragging their feet. Um, you, can, you can hardly blame them. I mean, that's, they've 
they've been making good money for 150 years. You can't imagine that they would suddenly be interested in, uh, you know, not selling as much of their product as they have, have sold in the past. And some of the utilities are dragging their feet as well, and some of the utilities are actually embracing the transition and saying, yeah, let's, let's be partners. Let's figure out how this works. Um, and let's not think about it as a zero-sum game. Let's think about it as an opportunity for all players. Okay. All right. Um, I just want to take a minute um, to remind listeners that you are tuned into WERU and you're listening to Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And today we are talking about solar production on Maine farms, either for the farm or even for communities, which I'd like to transition to in the next segment here. But my guests uh, for the show today... We have Bill Behrens from Revision Energy and Anna Demio from College of the Atlantic and Steve Katona from MDI Clean Energy Partners. Um, and I also want to take uh, a moment to give out the call-in number so we can open up the phone lines for any questions or comments listeners may have. And that number is one 625 uh, and I'll repeat that a few more times for the rest of the show. But uh, moving moving ahead, I'd like to get into maybe some more specific examples of farm-based installations uh, for solar power, and then even talk about different types of arrangements that those, uh, community arrangements that those might involve. So I wanted to ask Anna maybe to describe a couple of the kind of farm-based systems that you have uh, put together for College of the Atlantic. Sure. So as listeners might know, that College of the Atlantic um, runs two uh, farms here on MDI, uh, Beach Hill Farm and uh, Peggy Rockefeller Farm. And I've taught several courses to install uh, both solar arrays with students and um, other renewable energy and conservation measures at Beach Hill Farm. And so in 2010, I believe, we received a grant to do an um, demo- energy demonstration project at the farm. And what this was was um, an opportunity for Beach Hill Farm to uh, offer a series of workshops on a number of different technologies, from wind turbine to solar panels, um, heat pump, biomass, uh, furnace for a greenhouse, and uh, a number of conservation measures as well and um, open these workshops up not just to students but to community members to come in and understand how do you put these systems together, what are the costs, what are the incentives and rebates that um, business people and other farmers and homeowners can take advantage of. So um, as part of that project, we did, uh, let's see, a total now of um, 40 solar no, let's see, hmm. maybe about 50 solar panels um, in 10 to 12 panel increments. And what uh, these projects really allow uh, students to learn and community members to learn is how do you approach the, the, these sorts of uh, dilemmas? So the question I probably get um, asked most is, where do I start? How do I begin? Mm-hmm. And and I have to say that now there's a lot more uh, information out there, um, many thanks to Revision for that, than there was even five years ago. But but where do I begin? I, I want to reap these savings. I want to do what I think is right and, and produce energy locally, but how do I get started? And so what we did is um, did the series of different projects and then left all the information open 
uh, to the public. So you can see that work at um, COA's website. If you go to coa.edu slash energy, uh, it will give you uh, all the numbers on the solar and on the wind and on the um, heat pumps and biomass. Uh, I have to warn you, though, that this project was done several years ago now, and uh, the price of solar has dropped so drastically right now. I think we were paying, uh, I, I might have this number, I think we are paying about $5 a watt at the time, if you can believe it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which wasn't that long ago. And it just goes to show you uh, how much the, the um, cost of these systems have come down and how it makes sense for people to do, regardless of your... Um, Regardless of how much you like solar, it makes economic sense uh, mm-hmm. to do this, and that's really encouraging. What are, what are prices roughly now? Uh, I, Three and approaching two? Yeah, I would even say two and a half. Um, I mean, it's different. So when, when I do projects, I do them with students. Mm-hmm. And so we have the advantage of, of having student labor as they're learning how to do these projects. Um, mm-hmm. Bill might have a good idea of what the, what the industry is charging these days in Maine. Yeah, it really it really varies, and it, and the variation is not in the equipment. You're absolutely right. The equipment has dropped to the point where it, you know the raw equipment costs on a solar project are you know down in the under two dollars mm-hmm. a watt. Um, and so then it becomes okay. How difficult is the site to work on? Um, how much uh, do I need to pay people uh, in order to to develop the equip the site? And <clears throat> the labor isn't a lot. <clears throat> but it is still a significant portion of the cost. Um, I just wanted to steer listeners to um, a website called uh, mainsolarfarms.com. And that's, this is a new kind of solar farm that's happening now. Uh, there have really only been two built in the state so far. These are usually um, developed on, on properties that uh, were originally a farm and, and now are finding alternate uses for land that is no longer being grazed or, or cultivated. Um, and the idea here is that uh, community members band together and create a, a, a solar array efficiently in a single location, but then they all take the benefit of the power generation. So that's a, that's a kind of farming that I think we'll see more and more of over the coming decade. Um, we see costs on solar farms, for example, in the low $3 range, between $3 and $3.50 per watt. Uh, We see commercial projects in the $2.50 a watt range. So um, the variation is is in a range. We used to install solar at $11 a watt, (laughs) believe it or not. Just to give your listeners um, a Mm -hmm. a benchmark, so uh, a single panel is about 250 watts. Yeah. One panel, mm-hmm. just to give you a, a sense of what that means. When okay. we talk about per watt, that mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. always resonate with people. <laughs> so 250 watts per panel at 2 or $3. Yeah. And that's how the panels are priced, essentially, is based on the wattage. Per watt. Okay. Yeah. So really what's happened is that the problem isn't in the, in the solar supply. There's plenty of it. And I, I think we're on a path where um, the whole world can be powered by um, renewables, certainly by 2100, um, and probably more quickly than that. And the whole state here in Maine could be powered by renewables probably um, much quicker than that. This doesn't mean all fossil fuels are going to go away. There are certain uses that are appropriate, and 
best uses for that. But um, by and large, this this shift is coming. So it's not the solar supply and it's not the technology. That's fine. So really where the issues are is in uh, siting, zoning, whatever conservation easements there might be, um, uh, law, policy, regulations, and uh, public acceptance, and your own uh, orientation of um, structures and shading and so forth and so on. So it, it's down to those kinds of more practical um, issues, and that's where um, the the transition has to happen. All of those things offer more obstacles than they should. Okay. Well, that's a nice segue into the next <laughs> couple of questions that I had written down were um, some of – I have read that there were, are some tax incentives that have maybe decreased in the state of Maine or disappeared or maybe the federal ones that are um, decreasing but due to expire shortly. Um, and I was wondering, Bill, could you speak to maybe some of those incentives that – that helped homeowners and, and farmers uh, put up solar arrays? Oh, certainly. Think about, you know, we as, a, we as a society create our governments and we ask our governments to, you know, sort of implement our social policy. We say we want, well, we want good roads. <clears throat> so we ask our governments to pay for the roads, and they say, well, you know, you've got to pay some taxes, and it, it all works. It's a social contract. And over the past decade or so, part of that social contract has said, has said we want renewable energy. And the government has said, well, okay, we're going to provide some incentives for renewable energy. Uh, what, what a lot of people forget is that <clears throat> we've been, <clears throat> in a sense, subsidizing the fossil fuel uh, industry for literally, literally decades. Um, and people get concerned about, oh, this little bit of money that we're uh, putting into renewables, and that's taxpayer money, and uh, we can't afford that. And we forget that the, the large volume of taxpayer money that goes to subsidize the, the use of fossil fuels, a very conservative international banker organization, the International Monetary Fund, published a report last spring um, noting that, according to their analysis on a global basis, the, the people of the world, through their governments, subsidize the fossil fuel industry at the rate of $10 million per minute. Uh, we as taxpayers all over the world um, send $10 million of our money to the private enterprises that um, provide us with fossil fuels at $10 million a minute. So it's when we talk about the small subsidies that go into renewable energy, trying to affect this social transition from a fossil to a renewable um, energy basis, uh, let's not forget that meanwhile we're still spending gobs of money to make sure that the price of gasoline at the pump is low, that the shipping lanes coming out of the Far East are well protected by our military forces, all lots of ways that we guarantee that we have free-flowing fossil fuel. So then you come to the reality that, uh, you know, the, the public policy is implemented at federal and state level. And not everybody agrees as to, you know, what the right policy is, what that policy should be. Um, Maine, for example, has decided that uh, we're, we really don't need to provide any financial incentives to renewable energy. Um, and so the, the state of Maine right now has, has absolutely no incentive structure for renewable energy, whereas we still have the embedded uh, 
incentive structure for fossil energy. Uh, I don't imagine that we could convince the fossil uh, fuel industry to say, oh, that's right, our time is up. All of that money should go to renewable energy now. Um, but it is, it, it's not a, it, it's a landscape where both energy sources, in a sense, compete for the same dollars. Uh, and as governments are influenced by who can shout the loudest, and those who shout the loudest are the ones who can pay people to shout, um, we find that the renewable energy industry tends to lose this um, incentive battle over and over again to the fossil industry. If we truly wanted to implement a social change in energy policy, if we truly had the political will to do so, I think we could do it a lot faster um, than Steve uh, mentioned earlier, is the pace of change. Did you want to add something, Steve? Well, I, I just wanted to add another uh, interesting um, parallel that I've thought of with regard to um, the decarbonization of our f fuel source and farming. You know, um, the Farm Bill subsidies to um, farmers to not grow crops that aren't needed or to um, support prices by not overextending supply uh, could be applied to the fossil fuel companies. The, the limit um, is not going to be how much uh, fuel they can provide, but how much fuel can actually be burned to maintain a tolerable climate. So that stuff's going to have to stay in the ground, and one could possibly speed the process by subsidizing the uh, non-extraction of fuels, just as you do the non- That's a great idea. Yeah. Anyway, um, it, it seems to me that farmers have a, a couple of fundamental choices. Number one is whether to build a, um, let's say, a solar a PV unit for themselves, and then it's either on a structure or a ground mount or to do it for a group, some sort of a community solar. And those are the um, two things I think that we could think about that would be interesting. Yeah. Does Can I just take one second to give yeah. out the number again? Uh, if anyone would like to call in with a question or comment, that number is one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. And this is Common Ground Radio, and we're talking about solar power on farms. Anna, go ahead. So the good news is that um, the solar revolution is worldwide, and that has really helped to have prices uh, drop. And as we were talking about earlier, there are still some incentives out there. Yes, Maine, um, Maine unfortunately, no longer has incentives, uh, unlike our neighbor Massachusetts, who has um, some really attractive programs. But we do have the 30% tax credit, which is a federal tax credit. That's supposed to sunset at the end of 2016. So um, there's, a, there's a huge push right now to um, install more solar before that sunsets. And to give you a perspective of numbers, and, and Bill, jump in here if, if my numbers are incorrect, but um, we're about 20,000 megawatts of installed capacity in the U.S. right now, and that's supposed to double by the end of, that was as of last year, we're supposed to double by the uh, time the federal tax incentive uh, goes away at the end of 2016. So that's a huge push for the economy. And we're talking about over 175,000 jobs in the solar industry alone. And so this this is business. This makes sense economically as well as um, in terms of our environment. There's also a depreciation, um, uh, accelerated depreciation that businesses can take. And this is really helpful for nonprofits like COA and for municipalities and schools uh, where we cannot necessarily take these um, the uh, 
tax incentives or the depreciation, but we can partner with uh, companies like Revision or like MDI Clean Energy Partners. And in this public-private partnership, uh, schools and other nonprofits can realize the savings. Um, so, so we're we're finding creative and um, inventive ways to to make this work, and that's that's really encouraging. Um, the last one uh, that comes to mind for me is the USDA REAP grant that's offered to uh, for agriculture and farming uh, to get a grant that would reduce your overall cost of installed solar by about 25%. Um, and I know those are, are limited grants, but there are some there are some rays of sunshine out there. Okay. We, we, we have one solar farm uh, going into Rockland. At least we have our fingers crossed that it will. And the, and the design of that is, is a sort of a farm-friendly design in which uh, we can help we can help folks um, oh. You still there, Bill? Yeah, I've got. I think I've got a phone issue going on here. Okay, sorry. All right. Well, we'll give you a, give you a minute there, and uh, we do have a caller. We have Jane from Orono on the line. So if... yeah, good morning. Good morning. Um, I used to know Steve Katona a long time ago when the COA was first starting up, and I'm glad to hear um, the discussion. You know, that's inter disciplinary and connected about solar energy in our youth. Oh, thanks. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, A couple of things. You know, we've been locked into the systems as they have evolved, and everybody uses electricity. So we really do need to concentrate on small devolution home use and small uh, business use in terms of getting off the grid or getting a a grid that um, is more devolved. I'd really like to see, I know that, um, you know, civilization is locked into a lot of large uh, uses of, of electricity, but it would seem to me as though um, we could concentrate not so much on worrying about helping the utilities to buy into it, and not so much about thinking big or smart grid, but actually thinking small and have a little and a little make a lot. I'm looking at my electricity bill. I had to put it on a budget payment, and it's $125 a month. And um, I'm a really low usage. I did have some people living with me last year, and they were charging their phones and their computers, and you know, a little bit of electricity was used for heat. So I had to um, get my but my electricity under control in terms of paying them, and uh, they get immense amounts of money when they separate up the wattage, uh, the kilowatt hours, and they split it between you know production and servicing. Uh, that whole system is pretty pretty difficult to try to support because electricity prices for homeowners keep going up. And it's really hard to find a way to retrofit our old New England stock, but we're going to have to do it. So we should probably figure out what is the best use of electricity for the small users and, uh, and try to design solar as a secondary or tertiary measure for the transition to try to cut down on the bills and the use of fossil fuel. 
So if anybody has a comment on that, let me know. Thank you. Okay, thank thank you for calling in, Jane. And well, Jane, um, there was a lot bundled into that, and um, I think we we all agree that uh, certainly small kinds of um, electrical units are good and could be developed, and a more efficient grid certainly is going to be important. Um, the with regard to electricity, uh, it's a, it's a really important sector to focus on because it it, it pre- creates probably forty uh, percent or something like that of uh, fossil fuel emissions. So making the whole thing more efficient is a is going to be a big deal climate wise. And the last thing I'd mention is um, a megawatt is the best watt. So a watt that you don't use is the most valuable of all. So uh, going through the house and finding what your major uses are and seeing what you might be able to do to uh, reduce them uh, can really pay off. We got our electricity bill down by, I don't know, 60% um, just by replacing all the light bulbs with more efficient uh, stock. Mm-hmm. And it makes a big difference. So you've probably done all that, but it's worth a second look. Okay. And it looks like we have another caller. So we have Rick from Waldoboro on the line. Would you want to go ahead, Rick, with your question or comment? Yeah, I wonder if anyone could speak to uh, dynamic pricing. We all had to buy these smart meters, and I thought that we were going to start paying more for electricity when it was uh, least available and far less when it was more available, and that would work with solar, it seems to me, really well. And I'm curious that uh, that doesn't seem to be happening in Maine, or maybe it's not happening anywhere in the country, and I'll take the comments off there. All right. Thank you, Rick. CJ, can I answer? Uh, Can I speak to that point? Sure. I'm glad that you're still there, Bill. Yes. Actually, (laughs) my phone uh, apparently cleared up. Rick, that's a great question. And you and a lot of people in the state of Maine are wondering why we... Um, all have these smart meters, which don't seem to do anything for us. Um, and it's, I think the answer is that the, the wheels uh, turn very slowly in Augusta. Um, just uh, last week, I believe, the PUC has begun uh, the process of figuring out how to do that. And this has been a push for a number of years, probably four or five years now, Um well, we now have good metering. Let's use it to actually price electricity at its marginal cost. The marginal cost being um, if the utility needs to provide electricity in this next hour, what do they have to pay for that electricity? Uh, so I think over the coming six to nine months, you will see a, a much more active discussion about exactly that point in, 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 uh, in Augusta. And there will be a lot of participants <clears throat> both from the utility side, from renewable energy side, from the uh, public advocate side, uh, in that conversation. And the result will be uh, a new um, pricing structure for electricity in the state. Um, that in itself is a big change, and so it'll probably take several years uh, to, to bring about. But um, we all hope that it will be based on dynamic pricing, um, so that we as consumers can actually control our electricity costs by controlling when and how much we use power that we are purchasing from the grid. Okay. Um, thanks, Bill. 
We have another caller that just uh, came in on the line. I think we have Neil from Swans Island. If you'd like to give your question or comment, yes, I would. I would like to say that I think we're selling solar thermal uh, short. That means when uh, we talked about heating a fluid, you don't want to heat antifreeze, but we do have issues of freezing here. But really, all most of our BTUs that we use are not consumed electrically. It's heating that really is what we need the help on, I think. And when you talk about job creation, when you're done with solar panels, you're done. But solar thermal is, you know, keeps people working because the system can always be improved or tweaked. That's it. That's kind of what I have to say. Okay. All right. Thanks for the call, Neil. Um, Neil, you've you've got a good point there. Um, simply because the photovoltaics only use the high energy photons in the you know the blue range, and the thermal um, units use everything, all of the low grade, the heat, and so forth. So they are efficient. They do require more storage um, uh, facilities and expenses and installation, but it's absolutely quick payback and good stuff if you've got the uh, you know the place for it. There's a, there's a brilliant um, experiment going on in Canada, an entire housing development based on solar thermal. Uh, and what they did is they created a storage, a heat storage um, cavern, essentially underground, <clears throat> which stores all of the heat generated in the summertime and releases it in the wintertime to heat the, the residences. Uh, it's a brilliantly successful experiment. It's been operating for three or four years. Um, that's what you need to do. And I, I totally agree. Solar thermal is being sold short. Uh, it's only being sold short right now because of the relative pricing structure and that solar electric has, has, has gained the price edge over solar thermal. Um, that, that, that balance was completely opposite five years ago. Um, okay. Uh, Bill, we have another caller that has called in. I believe we have Greta from Lincolnville. If you'd like to go ahead with your comment or question. Uh, good morning. This is a great show um, on a great community radio. I'm calling about some good news from community. Um, in Lincolnville, we renovated an abandoned 1849 schoolhouse into our very first community library a couple of years ago. And one of our goals in renovating it was um, to maintain the building's historical integrity, but while trying to make it as energy efficient as possible. And with uh, Revision Energy's help, we have a huge uh, solar array on our roof, and we now generate more electricity than we can use. And so the Energy Committee um, is looking into how we can pass our credits on to other nonprofits within our community. So it's just a, a real exciting um, educational project for our community and it's a sunny day <laughs> so we're making it as we speak um if people want to get on uh to our website there's actually um the solar panel inverter output is updated to the internet and you can see what the sunshine has done in lincolnville center today okay. there's a link Okay. Thank you, Greta, for your call. I think Anna had something to add in here. That's terrific. I love hearing stories like that um, of these successes. And one thing that I always think of when I hear um, 
communities like this doing this work is the level of energy literacy um, and how far it's raised in the past five or six years that you have community members understanding what kilowatt hours are and how to look at solar online. And and that really, to me, is such a key point in, in this whole revolution that has to happen is that we have to um, become a culture that understands what is a kilowatt hour and how is power different from energy and the, the fundamental of energy literacy so that we can talk intelligently about stuff like time of day pricing and, and how much are we paying for um, our power and our energy at different times. And so and so, um, one of the courses that we teach at COA is called the Physics and Math of Sustainable Energy that I teach with my colleague Dave Feldman. And a big um, component to that is understanding the numbers. And I just wanted to mention one caller had called in about the grid. And, and one thing we teach about in our class is that climate change is a big problem and it's going to need big solutions. And I, I would advocate that the grid is our friend in, in this whole um, uh, journey we're on, but that we do have to rethink about how the grid is structured and how the pricing is structured. And uh, and there's there certainly places across the world and within this country, For Cal- in California, for example, they do have time of day pricing, and I'm very encouraged that Maine is going to follow suit. Is Greta, Greta, are you still on the line? I am. I have one more comment, if I might. Um, if you drive by, our everyone's welcome to our library, but we have an external um, monitor that gives all that information right on the back side of the building as well as online, and it's, it's really fascinating. And, and Greta, isn't it true that a, a fair portion of the space heating of that 1840 schoolhouse is now being accomplished by a, a fantastic technology called air source heat pumps, which actually right. use electricity at a two to three times the, uh, normal efficiency to provide space heating? Exactly. Yes, yeah. you're correct. And and so we're doing a lot of projects of that sort now where the, the power generated on the roof by the solar electric panels is, in fact, heating the building in the wintertime. Um, and that's, that's because of the development and the, sort of a companion technology of the heat pumps. Uh, right. Br- brilliant, brilliant progress being made in that technology in the, in the past few years. Yes. It's just a great story, and the more you tell it, the more it's going to influence other people to uh, look hard and possibly do their own project. And, you know, people love success, so it will build. And it's nice to be able to share um, the the sun's power with our neighbors. Mm -hmm. And Greta, people will be able to find that information through the Town of Lincolnville website? Lincolnville Community Library, and um, when you get to the Lincolnville Community Library, then there is um, a whole section on modeling energy efficiency, and there's a link to the solar panel production that has all the numbers. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's great information to share with the community. Um, well, we, we are... Um, this is Common Ground Radio. We're talking about uh, producing solar power on main farms or main communities, and we're getting into the final minutes of the show here. So um, I just wanted to ask my guests that I have here, we have um, if we had any kind of closing thoughts or last-minute comments that haven't been able to squeeze in anywhere in between the callers and questions that we've had. Otherwise, um, maybe I'd ask a question, but Anna, it looks like you have something on mind. <laughs> Uh, no, I think we've covered a lot. I, I think on a, on a larger scale, um, in terms of agriculture and farming and solar, it's an interesting question. Um, 
worldwide and across the country, we have a lot of uh, issues about what are we doing on our farms, growing corn for ethanol versus solar panels. And I was at a talk uh, last year where a person said, you know, I don't want to drive by, drive through the Midwest and just see rows and rows of solar panels. I want to see rows and rows of wheat. And it's, uh, I, I don't have um, probably enough time to address that <laughs> <laughs> that point, but it's an interesting, um, we are so fortunate in this country to have so much um, open space and that really dovetails well with thinking about large solutions for our energy issues and um, I think it's a conversation worth having. Yeah well I think that we are just about out of time so I don't I see the phone had flashed a couple times but um, we have only a minute left and I wanted to take that minute or so to thank our three guests for the show today. Bill Behrens from Revision Energy. Bill, thank you for joining us today. And Anna Demio from College of the Atlantic. And Steve Katona from MDI Clean Energy Partners. Uh, And this has been Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, with help, of course, from WERU. And um, tune in next month, the first Friday of the month, at 10 a.m. for Common Ground Radio again. And uh, coming up now, looks like On the Wing with... Uh, Joel Raymond here, and thanks for tuning in.